Hello, and welcome to UK Column. You know, at UK Column, we don't just report on the news. We don't just interview experts and publish a plethora of articles which you can see on their website. We're more than that, because behind the scenes, 24-7, the wheels are turning, and we are collaborating with experts uh, all around the world. We're connecting with people, we're sharing information, and we're doing our own research. So our conversation today with my two guests is going to be incredibly important. And I want to ask you, watching, how many of you now are receiving texts, emails, calls, or you know your loved ones are, to invite you for the latest jab or for the latest treatment for something? But medicines are changing, and they're changing very quickly. The medicines that we've all been used to, we're all familiar with, that many of us trust or trusted, they're now becoming unavailable or they're in short supply. Can the public trust the new medicines coming down the pharmaceutical pipeline? Is any medicine safe? Does safety even exist? As we're being met with all of this information, how do we know what to do, what questions to ask? And that's why I'm really delighted to be able to welcome two friends of UK Column, not just experts in their own right, but two friends. And many times we have conversations behind the scenes and we thought it would be nice if we recorded one of our conversations of where we brainstorm and we talk about things and we share information with you. So today I'm joined by Hedley Rees, who is unique, a one-off a world expert in pharmaceutical manufacturing and distribution. And he's held so many senior positions in pharmaceutical companies, Bayer UK, British Biotech, and so many more. He's a managing consultant for PharmaFlow, and he's an author of many books, and we'll come to his books in a minute. And he also has a substack, and we'll put all of the links to everything that we're saying in the article that'll be beneath this interview. So I've got two guests today. So my second guest is our other great friend, warrior and maverick, Cheryl Granger. And Cheryl is a self-employed training consultant to the pharmaceutical industry. So without further ado, let me just, before I start with a question, let me just introduce and welcome first Headley. Welcome to UK Column and thank you so much for your time. Oh, hi, Debbie. I'm blushing so much after that. You're too kind. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be a friend of UK Column. I think you do wonderful stuff. And um, yeah, I only have to agree with that introduction. Thank you, Headley. And we really are so grateful to be in touch. And to our UK War Room warrior, Cheryl Granger. Cheryl, welcome back to UK Column. Thanks, Debbie. And hello, Headley. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's always nice to have an introduction from Debbie. <laughs> uh, we always feel a lot better after that. Well, you know, the introductions are honest, they're genuine, and they're with love because you both are true experts and warriors, and you've been calling out the agenda right from the get-go. Um, but first of all, what I want to do is actually ask, start with Cheryl, because we're going to put this into context for our audience. So I'm going to throw the first question to Cheryl, which is really important. It's, what is safe? Uh, Cheryl, because we get asked all the time, 
what medicine's safe. The MHRA say that, well, actually, nothing can be 100% safe. So in terms of pharmaceuticals, I have two questions for you. One, what is safe? And two, what can you see coming down the pharmaceutical pipeline? So I've got this wonderful book. It's the uh, Association of uh, British Pharmaceutical Industries, which is the ABPI, their code of practice that they're supposed to work towards. And this 2021 was the latest edition that I train people on. And in um, the middle of it, in clause uh, 6.4, if I just read it out, it says information and claims about adverse reactions must reflect available evidence or be capable of substantiation by clinical experience. It must not be stated that a product has no adverse reactions, toxic hazards or risks of addiction or dependency. The word safe must not be used without qualification. And how often have we heard the word safe? in relation to the, the vaccines over the last few years. Um, so that is what the industry is supposed to be working towards. And anything that is uh, broken within this code, um, there's an organisation, the PMCPA, that they're supposed to be reported to. I did try and raise that issue um, with the PMCPA and I was um, basically um, fobbed off. Um, so apparently um, the word safe, it seems to apply to everything else apart from these new vaccines. And that brings me on to your second part of your question about um, what is in the pipeline. Um, there was um, the senior, uh, sorry, the um, scientific officer of Moderna was on a TED talk one of these 15-minute talks, with an audience that was very enthusiastic and kept clapping her. And she actually um, announced uh, by going on clinicaltrials.gov that there were 175 mRNA um, vaccines in the pipeline that are actually in clinical trials at the moment. Um, and there were another 54 um, that were actually uh, awaiting clinical trials to start. So that gives over uh, 220, nearly 230 mRNA preparations that are in the pipeline. And that's what I'm very worried about because they're coming out fast and, and furiously, um, assuming that they're all safe and effective, as we keep being told. So if you look at um, the um, clinicaltrial.com, um, or .gov, should I say, about mRNA vaccines. Um, there are many, many in um, clinical trial over cancer treatments for lots and lots of different cancers throughout the body, but there's also um, infectious diseases covered. So there are um, trials that are looking at influenza and the quadrivalent uh, influenzas as well. And then they're looking at uh, rheumatic diseases and uh, RSV and rabies, uh, Nipah virus, um, also hepatitis B, Epstein, bar, um, cytomegalovirus, um, varicella uh, zoster, um, and then um, tuberculosis. And I think, uh, Debbie, you picked up on MRSA as well and some others. Yeah, I did. I picked up, of course, we know about the flu vaccines that are coming down the line and some are already here in other countries, mRNA. There's also the flu and COVID combination that's coming down the line. There's uh, Moderna have got Teen Cove and Kid Cove, 
coming down the pipeline. And we're looking, of course, at HIV. Uh, we're looking at RSV uh, that we've been talking about. And of course, we know that that affects uh, many children. Um, but it's not just mRNA um, injections. It's also we're looking at vaccines for other conditions that chickenpox, for example, E. coli, um, all sorts of things. So we've got medicines coming down the line that we don't know what they are. And this is where I'm going to ask Headley, because Headley has always said right from the get-go, these are biologics, and biologics are very different from the medicines that we're used to. Headley, can I ask you to explain to our audience in very simple terms these new medicines, many of them, are biologics. What does that actually mean? Yeah, uh, thanks, Debbie. Well, biologics are medicines made from living things. They're alive. Uh, with the injections, they were uh, animal cells living, very sensitive to temperature variation. So the first thing is they would have had to have been stored at minus 193 de degrees C before they were transported. And there has to be a complete real-time trace of the temperature from the time it's, it, the cells are put into what they call an LN2 container, liquid nitrogen. They call them uh, dry shippers because if they fall over, the liquid nitrogen doesn't come out. So they have to be shipped th through airlines and you know cargo handling, the whole thing. There has to be a real-time temperature monitor in there. And at the end of the journey, they have to prove that the temperature has not gone out the set uh, limits, which would be maybe minus 185 to minus 197. And if they have, then the quality control department have to do an investigation. And uh, that's what that's called an excursion. And... If they cannot prove that the product is, is unchanged, then they have to just scrap it. So that goes to the next stage, which is uh, the actual making the drug substance. And, and that's where you take the cells and you grow them, they multiply, and they end up in a, a bag, a sort of liquid bag, maybe 10, 15 litres, and, and that's got the active ingredient inside the drug substance, either adenovirus or these mRNA uh, viruses in there. Now, they also have to be kept to temperature all the way through the manufacturing process. And because these are living things, the vessels that they are mixed in can, uh, can interact with the, the cells so that it, the, there could be minor changes each vessel will have a different different impact on the material and, and the cells. So there is a mantra in the industry that says the process is the product. The process is the product. So you cannot test the product and unless you actually do clinical studies on it to compare the clinical effect on a patient of one product against the clinical effect on another product. And that is incredibly difficult to do. And that's why we see so few generic biologics come into market, what they call biosimilars. It's because they cannot prove they are similar to the originator product, like a septin, a vastin, you know, monoclonal antibodies. The companies that first launched them, they are still selling them. There's no, virtually no generic competition 
because the manufacture is so difficult to replicate. So, and so we've got this now, we've got the process of the product, we've got the temperature variation, we've got the fact that as these, as this substance, once it's made the drug substance, it goes then to another company, and we know the companies, to, to fill the product into vials. And that is a, a process that typically goes right the way through to a vial with a, an aluminium seal packed into a carton, and that will then go off to wholesalers to go to pharmacies. But, of course, that couldn't happen here because they were frozen down to uh, the, the, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines were frozen down to either minus 70 for Pfizer and minus 20 for BioNTech. So they couldn't go through the normal distribution system, which in the UK would be uh, uh, Alliance Healthcare, um, you know, the, the large pharmacy chains, what they call pre-wholesalers. They couldn't go through, the, uh, sorry, wholesalers. So they had to set up a different supply chain to take the frozen vaccines into the vaccination centers. So again, there should have been temperature monitors in all of these uh, transfers in, and the people in the vaccination centers should have been taking them out, downloading them, looking at the temperature trace, and if there'd been any excursions that should have happened, they should have been uh, calling an investigation on the excursion. So I hope that makes sense to you, Debbie. <laughs> It makes perfect sense. And it's also, um, you know, you're talking about the temperature there, Headley, and we've been talking about the freeze and the thaw and, you know, who knows where these injections have been or how they've been stored on their thousands of mile journey from wherever they've originated. But we've also heard recently from uh, Professor Flowers in our recent interview that uh, actually Gerald was was with us for that in a bunch of flowers for Pfizer, where we know now that the mRNA and the nanolipids are disturbed by even vibration. And Professor Flowers was telling us that some of these injections had been transported on mopeds over potholes. You know, it's that, it's that fragile, it's that delicate. And I found a paper and this is the first time we're talking about it actually today. And I know that I've I've spoken to you both about it, but um, this is slightly concerning in that I went right back through the Lancet papers of mRNA and I found a paper from 2017 that says that delivering mRNA and uh, nanolipids through a needle is not effective and, and, and should not be delivered through a syringe and needle. So obviously many, many things have gone wrong or not been done right from the word go. And and I know that Headley, you've you've said before it's a bit like building a car, isn't it? Because if you buy a, a a car, you expect it to have been tested, to have been gone through numerous test drives before you put your baby and your children and your family in the car. But this car, this vaccine, this mRNA product, this has been outsourced to so many people and kind of almost thrown together that no safety checks, pretty much, have ever been done right from the word get from the word go would that be a fair assumption in that i'm saying that basically the safety checks were never done through every single part of the process 
Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, you kindly, uh, UK Column kindly uh, invited me to a, an MHRA Good Distribution Practice Symposium. And I've, re I've got recordings of some of the presentations where they've said that they were, well, a few things, they were shipping under quarantine, which means they were shipping product before it had finished testing. And the risk in that is because you ship into a different company, different ownership, the chances of them communicating with you once it is finished past, or particularly if it's failed, are zero. So we know there was no quality control throughout the supply chain, and particularly not the vaccine centers. These are supposed to be sterile, and the regulations they come, uh, come under are for the preparation of sterile products, and, you know, the regulations spell out these have got to be skilled people. They say importantly that because the sterility of the product depends on the skills of the people in manufacture, you cannot what they call terminally sterilize. You couldn't, even if they were wanting to sterilize, you can't sterilize it at the end because it wouldn't have picked up any of the minor uh, contaminations that would have happened through it. So the contamination going into patients' bodies in vaccinations would have been absolutely immense. Absolutely. They were carrying out manufacturing operations that come under good manufacturing practices where the facilities have to be inspected, people have to be properly skilled, they have to have the training, they have to know what to do when they find something going wrong, they have to understand how to control the stock, how they label different vials, Remember, there were five doses in each vial for, for Pfizer. So the other thing is, how well mixed was that vial after it had saline diluent inserted and then turned over 10 times? Um, you know, you can get hot spots. That's why this all has to be done under strict manufacturing regulation because you have to check when you mix something, it's a homogeneous mixture. It doesn't, and you know, you ask 10 people to turn, you know, to put saline diluent in the vial and turn it over 10 times, you get 10 different um, uh, uh, liquids in the vial. Uh, you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, there's so many contraventions. So hopefully that makes a bit of sense. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And I can see that Cheryl's got a question for you, Headley. So let's go straight to Cheryl. I mean, we were talking, Headley, about vibration, you know, taking things on motorbikes and shaking things up. But it seemed that they didn't give them standard operating procedures for mixing in the administration centres. Uh, I was told that some people were looking it up on Google as to how to do it. And then they, they were told to do it these 10 times. And as you've said, that's the vibration thing again, isn't it? That's the, if you do it gently, you might not disturb it too much. But if you shake things up like you do a bottle of medicine quite often, um, then you've got major problems again because of the vibration. Yeah, Cheryl, it's difficult to describe how bad this, this has been, really. One of the prime requirements, anyone who works in the automotive industry or LN industry or basically any industry who's implemented ISO 9000, 9001, 9002, a quality system, quality systems are required to uh, assess or, or to ensure that the products that have been produced are fit for purpose. And in pharmaceuticals, that means the product's been tested. The product's been produced has been tested properly, uh, uh, both non-clinically and clinically, and also it's made to a quality system. 
And the well-known quality system is good manufacturing practice and good distribution practice. And they just ignored it totally. So you imagine if, uh, you know, if Boeing suddenly said, uh, these quality systems really, do we need them? There's only, there's only passengers going in the planes, you know, if we kill a few million. What the hell? You know, the, 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 this is where we've been. It is impossible to exaggerate how bad it has been. Headley, um, Cheryl very kindly gave me a very helpful analogy a little while ago and uh, to illustrate upscaling. And she said, you know, if I make a chocolate cake for my family, um, lovely, but if I'm asked to make a chocolate cake for the whole street or maybe the whole village, it's not going to taste the same as my little chocolate cake for my family. And I want to bring you back before we go to the dangers of all of these mRNAs coming down the line, because that's what mRNA effectively is. It's uh, the the regulatory authorities have seemed to have given approval for mRNA full stop, and then they can add things to it without without it going back through safety processes or clinical trials. It's just like well we've already approved this one cake. So basically add whatever you like to it. And I just, before we move on to mRNAs per se, I want to just come back to the COVID-19 mRNA, the Pfizer product, because I think many people now know or are understanding that in the USA, they received a completely different product from the products that those in Europe and the UK received. And the product, the, the product that we received in the UK um, was actually contaminated by E. coli, which is a, a bacteria. I mean, it's poo, basically. And as we've said before, E. coli for you, inside you, is very healthy. But if it's someone else's E. coli, if it's come from somewhere else, it's extremely dangerous. Now, this process is called bait and switch. And I know you've been doing a lot of work on this. So would you like to explain a little bit more about bait and switch and what we've received here and what the USA received? Yeah, well, I, I need to put this into context first, because we're talking here about a change of process. A company in a rush, you know, it's emergency they start off with a process and they come to the point where they've, they've done it. And they and that was submitted to the regulators as the formal process to FDA. Then they realized it wasn't really, as, as happens if you're developing anything, the first cut of it isn't what you expected. So they moved to a second process with the uh, uh, LN, uh, with all the different with the changes. But I made this point yesterday to Dr. Malik when I was talking to him. The detail of it doesn't matter. If you make a change in any process, you have to then validate the change. And since the first uh, lot was made to a, a, a process one, changing to the second process, they should have submitted a post-approval application to approve that change. So they should have, mit should have submitted safety data to the FDA to say, look, we've tested this again in animals and, uh, and whatever tests that need, need to be done. And this new process is also 
safe, can we have approval? And that typically takes six to 12 months because there's a lot of assessment to, to go in there. So, you know, if any company, if uh, one of the automotive companies changed uh, a gearbox or, you know, did something different with their car, they would have to go through all the rigorous testing to make sure that the brakes aren't going to fail or, you know, it meets all the requirements that they've, that they've got to meet. So this is just one example of a catalogue of changes that took place that had no uh, approval, no uh, validation, no checking that they were going to work. They just made changes willy-nilly, I can use that uh, well-known term. One of the other things that I've just learned, um, Headley, um, is that you made the discovery that the Oxford Biomedica, in fact, it was Cheryl that told me this today, and I was quite shocked, um, Oxford Biomedica. Tell us about the relevance of, because th- th- these are where these, you know, these solutions are being made, not necessarily all mRNA, but AstraZeneca, the injection. Um, tell us about the relevance of a post office. Yeah, okay. Well, Oxford Biomedica is a company I consulted to in 2013, and I helped get them a grant of £7.1 million in gene therapy in what was called a lentivirus uh, uh, gene therapy. But they also made the adenovirus gene therapy for AstraZeneca. Now, I was heavily involved with the with the project. It was an advanced manufacturing supply chain called Advanced Manufacturing Supply Chain Initiative. And I worked with them to put an innovative process where NHS, it was the heart of England, NHS Trust were involved, Cranfield University was involved. And so we framed the bid around that. And it was successful. And then a month later, the government, the Office for Life Sciences and all the great and the good came to Oxford Biomedica. And they really fell in, Office for Life Sciences really fell in love with it. And just after then, I sort of was let go. And um, it seems, I only just realized, it's, it's taken on a life of its own. Because I was saying to them, this is early days for gene therapy manufacture. You know, the, the, the regulatory terrain is absolutely incredibly complex. But it seems that since 2013, it's this has grown and grown and grown, and Oxford Biomedica supply uh, the uh, the drug substance for Kimria, which is a gene therapy marketed by Novartis, which was approved in 2000 in, in 2017. And as I say, they also supply the drug substance for um, for AstraZeneca, and the way they did that was. The small company based in Oxford, and I've worked there three separate occasions, they hired, they rented an ex-post office building that was up for rent, and within three or four months, they validated all the processes and MHRA approved them to produce. So this is in, you know, I, all this is in Inside Pharma Substuff. I'm not sort of trying to plug that, but all the evidence is in there. Everything is properly explained, references, and this is undeniable. I'd stand up in court in front of any judge anywhere and say MHRA did not even go along to Oxford Biomedical Facility to inspect them. It was all virtual. Hadley, from the um, 
the symposium or whatever it was that you went to um, with the MHRA, they're now have decided that every inspection in the future is going to be virtual. Is that right? Not every inspection. Uh, they're, they're, it's very diluted in terms of inspections. Up in, previously, in the olden days, you had to be physically inspected to get a license to manufacture anything. Um, but they've introduced virtual inspections where Microsoft HoloLens 2 is used by the company. This is virtual reality and machine learning and all that sort of stuff. And the company, you know, just films what the, what they what what the MHRA asked to see, and you know that's about as useful as a chocolate teapot or chocolate fire guard. It's you know they're going to show you what they want you to see. The thing about an inspection, the inspector has to be able to go into all the nooks and crannies anywhere where things might have been hidden away, you know, and, and that has not happened. So, and they've watered it down by saying we'll maybe do two virtual inspections and then one physical in five years. But who's, you know, the fact that they've got virtual inspections at all is a gross contravention of MHRA responsibilities. Absolutely. If they don't go to a facility physically, write a report after that with observations, proper observations of what they found, and then the company responds to those observations. They are negligent in their responsibilities, absolutely, and you know, and this is just one of the negligent uh, areas of negligence. I find this very concerning, Headley, because basically, you know, anybody. I mean, I look around on industrial estates, and there are these little labs and biotech companies springing up all over the place where you wouldn't necessarily notice them. They're not in the middle of the high street. They're not glaringly obvious but they're just springing up. And the fact that they are springing up, and almost some of them, I guess you could call, I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm kind of thinking that some of them are almost like chemical kitchens, and they're being set up uh, anywhere without any kind of inspection. I know you said some of them will be inspected, but many will be virtually inspected. But these are bio labs, aren't they? I, I mean, am I wrong? I mean, because there are different grades of biolabs, there are different securities. So am I getting this wrong or am I understanding that correctly? Well, you're right, absolutely, in saying these companies are springing up all over the place. And BioNTech and, and Moderna were two that we, we know. But you look on the Internet now when you find a company called, in fact, Emitter just approved a company called Lucid Biopharma, I think they are. Just to prove them, if you look at the, the and this is on my Substack as well, if you look at their website, it's about 10 people. You've got chief business officer, you've obviously got a CEO, you've got a chief financial officer, you've got chief scientific officer. You try and look for the people with skills of drug development and, you know, proper commercial manufacture, and they haven't. But they're all they're all operated in what's called advanced therapies. They're called, and as you know, uh, Debbie and Cheryl, uh, MHA have now just announced and in, implemented point of care manufacture, uh, and I wrote, uh, I sent um, uh, a question to the March board meeting, uh, and actually said, how are you going to control this point of care manufacture if there's no quality systems in the hospitals? Because the the, the key to point of care manufacture is the hospital pharmacy or people in the hospital 
will actually be making the advanced therapies. So it, without the quality system, no one, no standard operating procedures, no one knows what's going on. You're guaranteed to kill people. And MHRA are now allowing that. They've changed the regulations in January 20, uh, uh, 2022. And I had a letter back from Dr. Laura Squire, who is in charge of just, she reports to June Rain, but she's in, just, uh, in charge of just about everything at MHRA other than security and locking up uh, at night. She's got a huge portfolio and she's only, a, she's basically a career civil servant and the last job was on the vaccine, uh, was with the Department of Social, Social Security working on UGF COVID vaccines. So, you know, and I've said, you know, I had then a, a team's call with Ian Reese, who's now left, he's retired, and he's now become a consultant to the industry, a Welshman, hallelujah. And he tried to develop, defend this point of care, and I said, okay then, so who's going to be do in the hospital, who's going to be importing the raw materials, the materials into the hospital and applying the good distribution practices of checking out the bona fides of the suppliers and all the things that you have to comply with, with good distribution practice. You have to do all the procurement things, the specifications. That is good distribution practice. He couldn't answer that, but he said, I'm retired. I'll retire at the end of the month. So thank you very much. I mean, you cannot make this up. You, you, you cannot put enough, any evidence in front of them where they actually would say, uh, you know, uh, come back and see us in 12 months while we think about it. I'm conjuring up, and I think I'm actually correct in conjuring up, that this isn't science fiction. This is science fact. And we are literally going to be sending raw materials, whatever they are, they could be toxic, they could be highly hazardous, into hospitals, into pharmacies. And we're going to get pharmacists literally cooking up chemical recipes according to that patient's need. And this is going to be called personalized genomic medicine. Can I just reiterate? I mean, it just sounds unbelievable. And you're right, you can't make it up. Um, have I just misunderstood that? Or is that actually what's going to happen? We're going to get people cooking up toxic re recipes right in front of our eyes at our bedside. Yes, that's, that is the, 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 the plan. Uh, they actually changed the regulation, the good distribution practice regulation, so that they could set up these, what they call, these responsibility, these responsible persons uh, in these, sat these satellites that they've got. So they, they, they effectively, the quality people for GMP, they called responsible person, persons for GDP, and they've never been able to import before, but now they're letting these people import from all over the world. Again, they wouldn't have the skills to do it, but they change, they're changing the regulations so that they could do basically what they did with the, the, the COVID-19 uh, injections um, for the last three years. And I cannot emphasize how dangerous that is. I cannot emphasize it. Uh, the only, uh, I, I mean, I just hope that people, when they realize what's happening, will stand up and say, we cannot let this happen in the NHS. But you know what? There's a huge network, three different networks in NHS that are working on advanced therapies. The ATTC, the Advanced Therapy, Advanced Network, 
which is being supported by the cell and gene therapy catapult based in Stevenage, has got these projects in um, in cancers going, basically what they call CAR-T therapies. This is a therapy for blood cancer. The first one was the Novartis one, Kimria, I mentioned earlier. And they're impossible to do because the manufacture takes has been taking place in big manufacturing plants and the patients in the hospital. So instead of solving the issues associated with um, all the things that need to be in place in the manufacturing plant and the issues of the logistics and distribution, they've just gone ahead and say, okay, well, we do it in the hospital anyway. And we won't take any precautions. We won't implement any quality systems. They've just gone and done it. We know because people like Kevin McKernan have actually done um, <laughs> experiments. Uh, they've actually analysed what's in the, the vials that we've been given and have actually found that it's DNA contaminated. So we're doing our own checks on, on good manufacturing practice. We're actually finding out and lots of scientists now have actually um, backed up what he's discovered in terms of these DNA um, um, pieces being left in there um, and that is then being wrapped up in the lipid nanoparticle and presumably taken into the cell and obviously there are consequences for all of that um, which we're probably seeing in a lot of the reactions that people are um, experiencing um, and it seems to be a cumulative thing so the more you have the more that you're exposed to these contaminants. Um, what can everybody who's discovering these things do um, to stop the um, rollout of all these um, things that are poisoning bodies. Yeah, that's that's an excellent uh, comment. Now, for some reason, I've spoken to lawyers for the vaccine injured. I've spoken to three lawyers, and I've ha I thought I had some success, but then they, you know, they backed off. And I've I've spoken. I, I won't say who they are, but. Uh, one of them was prominent in module four of the um, um, vaccine in, in, in inquiry. And for some reason, even though, uh, you know, I personally could give them evidence in front of a judge that would crucify these injections, absolutely crucify them. I, I've done, you know, so I don't know, because I think the only way this is going to be stopped, if it's, if a judge says, I've heard what's been going on, and this has to stop now, you know. And and that is, that's. I think it's going to happen at some point because it's cumulative. The the evidence keeps mounting, but it the government aren't going to stop it in the US or the UK or in Europe because we know about the conflicts of interest, etc. I think there needs to be a an honest judge, and for um, we know for. Um, the release of the Pfizer documents from 75 years down to whatever it was, an honest judge, I don't know his name, but hallelujah, you know, thank heavens for him, which released those Pfizer papers, which has been part of the cumulative effect and, and building. Um, and politicians, uh, the work that Rand Paul is doing, Senator Rand Paul is doing in the US with, uh, with Fauci and exposing him and Robert Kennedy Jr., you know, I think this is all about the people who have got conscience and ethics collaborating together, sharing information. Because I think there's too many people trying 
to have the answer to it all. And, you know, the, the substacks are, 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 are covered with different people, all maybe go saying good things, but, you know, they don't have the in-depth knowledge of how this industry has been working, particularly over the last 30 or 40 years. So, um, so you know, and, and, and so it's getting politicians engaged, lawyers engaged, and keep generating the evidence. And, you know, and I'll keep generating the evidence. and. Uh, um, uh, that's all I can say on, on that. I think it's really important too that you know legal challenges um, take a long time, and there have been many. There are many legal cases going on, and so may they continue. And I hope they have as, as much success as Aaron Series had with the Pfizer documents. But I think in the meantime, you know, until we're waiting for a legal challenge, we could be waiting. I don't know how long. So we need to say no. It's become very clear that mRNA is dangerous. And we don't even know what the effects are of mRNA with other medicines. And this has always been one of my biggest concerns is we have monoclonal antibodies coming down the line. We have antivirals coming down the line. And mRNA seems to be uh, coming out for pretty much everything. And for those people that are watching, and that have had mRNA or know people that have had mRNA, I promise you, before we come to the final word, we will give some advice on what to do if you've had an injection and you're concerned and what you can do moving forward. So we will we will come to that. But Headley, I just want to ask you quickly, because we seem to have a, a situation at the moment where the UK HSA has formed this contract with CSL Sequiris in Liverpool. Apparently, they're getting ready for an influenza pandemic vaccine. Now, how on earth they know they, they're going to know what the next flu inf influenza pandemic is going to be in order to prepare something? I have no idea. However, they're talking about the delivery of mRNA via aerosols. Now, with a with manufacturing in mind, with medical devices as well, legislation and regulation on medical devices, what is the capability of a factory in the United Kingdom producing over 50 million doses of mRNA or any flu vaccine or even an aerosol vaccine? Is that physically possible? No, that's cloud cuckoo land. That is a nonsense. It's uh, the fact that you know you have to not to you or you understand it, but it, it still puzzles me. How people can't make the link between launching a new car or new aircraft and between launching a new dosage form, which actually goes into people's bodies. You know, even if it goes in in your nose or your mouth or whatever, it's still going inside your body, and you have to do. Studies in, you know, in um, what they call D DMPK studies, non-clinical studies, that uh, pharmacokinetics and drug metabolism. So you have to know what is going into the body is, is is doing to you, but also what the body is going to do to it. Now that takes non-clinically before you go into humans, that typically takes at least three years, because you know you you have to know how the body metabolizes the metabolizes the drug. And it's highly skillful, and I don't, so 
so so then it takes three years to do those you know preclinical uh, um, uh, non-clinical studies. Then you know three, four, five years to because you've got to you've got to source the components. You've got to, they're on maybe a six or twelve month lead time. Some of them are very difficult to get. Some of them in scarcity. And then the first one doesn't work. You know, this, this is product development. People who work in product development should realize that you cannot knock these things out in six or 12 months. You know, it is absolutely impossible. And, you know, I'd, I'd sit down with anyone at the MHRA or, or healthcare, you know, Jenny Harris or whatever, and I'd say, I think you're talking nonsense. So you, you prove me wrong. And this is very important because, of course, talking nonsense, but it creates fear. And that's the whole name of the game, to create fear. Um, but I think for from my end, moving forward for advice, I would say to we'll put the link to the FLCCC website um, into the article beneath this interview where people can get help if they need detox programs and if they want to speak to qualified experts about how best to detox. And I think another bit of advice moving forward for everybody, and I'm going to throw back to Cheryl um, in a minute because I think her message on what you should say if you get invited for an mRNA jab for whatever, or a jab really for whatever reason, but specifically an mRNA jab. But ask questions. You know, it's time for us to stand up and ask questions, to be brave enough to ask questions. And sometimes it's very difficult. You feel if you're in front of a professional, you might not be able to, to say something in a way that it's not misinterpreted or you're seen as a troublemaker. Just, just do your own due diligence. And for people watching that aren't sure what they're receiving from their pharmacist or from their doctors, check the box that your medicine has come in. Look at your patient information leaflet and see what the active ingredient is and then go from there. With injections and flu jabs and COVID jabs, you often won't get the patient information leaflet prior to the injection, but they can all be found online. So all you need to do is ask the question what they intend to give you, and then you, I'm afraid it's down to each and every one of us to do our own diligence, but predominantly say no. Um, Cheryl, what is, I mean, you've been in very close contact with uh, the war room in the USA with Dr. Naomi Wolf. Um, and also Amy Kelly and uh, Professor Chris Flowers. What is your message for people watching this today with regards to any injection, specifically mRNA, that is coming down the pipeline? I think you go back to where we started and say that uh, these injections are not safe. And from all the Pfizer document analysis, and now it's starting with the Moderna analysis, that can be shown to be true that they're not safe. They're also not effective because we've gone into negative effectiveness and most people out there who know people who've had injections will know that they've probably been um, experiencing COVID infections quite a few times um, since they had the um, vaccination. Um, and then in terms of quality, 
you've got everything that uh, Headley's been saying. The thing about a pharmaceutical product, if it's within its uh, sell-by date, whenever you get it off the shelf, it's supposed to be exactly the same as it was when it was manufactured and the same as the one that somebody up the road's got. It's supposed to have in, uh, consistency um, within its um, manufacturing that uh, makes a product that is the same for all, um, that is manufactured to a British pharmacopoeia sort of standard. Um, and these vary so much because we've never manufactured things in this way before. Um, it's a very sloppy way of manufacturing. They said that it stayed in the arm. It doesn't. It goes through most systems of the body, and we don't know how long it stays for. And therefore, you get cumulative effects. So the more that you have of um, mRNA and other vaccinations, the more you are accumulating in your body. And that is not a good thing. So no matter how many you've had, do not have any more. Say no, as Debbie said. Make sure that you say no, because we've been told a lot of no's from the government and the NHS over the last few years. It's our turn now to say no. Um, and um, don't be frightened. Look into everything that you're told. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I have to reiterate all that Cheryl's said there. Please just say no and always ask the question. Question everything. And if the answer that you're receiving is not satisfactory and it actually doesn't answer what you've asked, say no. Do your own diligence. Don't trust us. Don't trust the experts that you're hearing. Trust yourself. It's up to each and every one of us to do our own research. And thanks to people like Cheryl and thanks to Headley. And you can read all of Headley's material on his Substack. And I subscribe to Headley's Substack and I would really recommend it because there is no other world expert in manufacturing and distribution that's currently talking talking out. Um, Headley, can I just ask you, before we come to both of your final words, what is your um, advice to people watching now that are getting a text, that are getting an email, telling them to go and have a flu jab and a COVID jab together, telling them to have a jab full stop? What's your advice to people watching now? Uh, what I'd say is you should treat these injections as an unknown substance. So if someone came up to you in the street and said, you know, will you put this unknown substance in your mouth or in your body in some way, would you just take that verbatim and say, okay, thank you very much, that tastes very nice, and then suddenly you're dead? Now, that might sound a bit glib, but that's what's happening the idea behind the process of drug development is to convert an unknown substance, what they call a new molecular entity, into a product that's safe, effective, and has been made to the correct quality. These have not. So you just have to believe that. On as I think as as Debbie said and Cheryl said, trust yourself. Just use your common sense. You know, think, think these are products that have been made 10, 15, 20 times faster than ever before. If it was a car, would you get into that car? If it was a plane, would you fly in it? No, you wouldn't. Uh, so I just, uh, as Debbie said, just trust yourself, but keep asking the questions. I, I know at least some people who have started, when I knew them, who were having as many injections as they could, now we'll never have another one again. So be one of those. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And I have to say, this is not to frighten anybody. You know, the last thing that we're wanting to do is to frighten anybody. And I know many of our audience are perhaps slightly older. And I worry for the youngsters who are being programmed by their phones. So it's up to us, perhaps some of the more mature generation, grandpas, grandmas, aunts and uncles, to pass the message to our youngsters. Because as Headley said, use common sense, use common logic. But sadly, our youngsters are so busy in their phones, bumping into lampposts and on social media with their friends, common sense seems to have gone out of the window. And we have to urge, please talk to your youngsters, talk to everybody, pass the word, learn to say no, be brave, stand up and say no. And on that note, I want to thank both Cheryl and Headley so much for their time, because this is a really important interview with some really vital messaging and also some solutions. And I'm going to give uh, the last word, as always, to both Cheryl and Headley. And I'd like Headley to give a bit of a shout out for his book as well, that he's going to be, um, it's going to be published very soon. But first of all, let's go to Cheryl. Thank you so much. You are our UK warrior. You are our UK war room. Cheryl, over to you for your last words. Thanks, Debbie. Um, I think back to my friend. My friend went for her um, flu jab last year and the nurse said, oh, why don't you have your pneumonia jab at the same time? And she thought to ask, is it safe to have both of them at the same time, one in each arm? And of course, the nurse said, oh, yes, it's fine. It's fine. And therefore, she'd asked the right question, but then she should have said, well, I don't want it now. I'm going to go away and think about it. Um, because the nurse didn't know. She pretended she did, but she didn't know. And the medics in that uh, surgery wouldn't have known either because the information isn't there. Um, And to actually state a fact as truth when it's not means that they're the wrong people that you're asking. And therefore, again, just say no and go and do your own research. Exactly. Just say no. And on a manufacturing point too, you know, if you go into a restaurant and you order a plate of food, you have to be told what's on your plate. Natasha's law. And if you're not told what's on your in, in your uh, meal, you have legal uh, a legal right, a legal obligation to sue uh, the chef uh, or the cook that's provided the food. We don't have that with pharmaceuticals. Nobody, nobody takes accountability. And that's why we're so grateful to Headley. Headley, thank you so much once again. It's over to you for your last word. Oh, you're very welcome, Debbie. So behind me there, you'll see um, in the middle, the first book I wrote in 2013, Supply Chain Management in the Drug Industry, Delivering Patient Value for uh, Pharmaceuticals and Biologics. And I raised a lot of these issues in that book, um, but obviously a lot of them were uh, uh, were ignored, basically. But only just this month, well, I've signed another contract with Wiley to write a book titled Transforming the Pharmaceutical Supply Chain. Wiley is an academic publisher, so this will be used to educate doctors, applied scientists and lawyers and whoever else wants to know. But it will it'll be around 300 pages in colour. And it's a big vote of confidence that Wiley have asked me to do this. 
Um, it should be out early in the new year, and I have to get the manuscript written by the end of this year, so I'm uh, busy on that. But in the meantime, I've also got – this is a self-published book called um, COVID Supply Chains, Fact Not Fiction, and this is written for people who know nothing about the COVID vaccine. It explains the regulations. It explains the risks. It explains how supply chains have killed people in the past. And it's only 100 pages, and um, it's not expensive. It's The Kindle version is $5. And I'm not used to doing these plugs, but so I'm going to stop there. Um, but, what, but the important thing is, the message I want to leave is with the people that I used to work with, the people in the industry, the people who know how dangerous these products are, you know, people who know me, and if they're watching this, they will know what I'm saying is absolutely correct. They're keeping their heads down. They are turning a blind eye because the industry has become so fragmented and so siloed, no one is taking responsibility for what's going on. So they're just hoping that they can get to retirement or some other way of getting out while the going's good, if you like. So I, my plea would be to them to say, you've got to speak out. You just have to speak out. And I think that's the message I would I would finish with.